Welcome to the Jesse Garcia Show, your half-hour home for politics, culture, and art. We come to you every Monday with a new story about what's going on in your world. On today's show, we have rising political star and progressive hero, Daniel Hernandez Jr., who will talk about his journey into politics and what it takes to launch a campaign. I want to thank all the folks following us at Jesse Garcia Show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. For more information about upcoming guests, visit jessegarciashow.com. I hope you're able to join me at the upcoming Creating Change Conference in Washington, D.C. on Friday, January 26th at 7 p.m. at the Marriott Wardham Park Hotel near Woodley Park Metro Station. I will be talking about creating your own LGBTQ organization and the need to empower people of color to prepare them for future leadership roles and political office. I want to wish you all a happy new year. For those of you who follow traditions like my mother Lupita, make sure to eat your 12 grapes at midnight, wear red underwear for love in the new year, or yellow underwear for wealth. And if you want both, Lupita recommends you don't wear any. Ay, esa señora. And here's your weekly news update. This past Christmas, while many families were home cooking holiday meals and opening gifts, families in Puerto Rico went without power for a third straight month since Hurricane Maria made landfall on September 20th. ABC News reported this past week that only 65% of the island's electrical grid is generating power. It is unclear how many customers actually have electricity, according to the government of Puerto Rico. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers says the majority of the island will have power by the end of February. American composer Lin-Manuel Miranda, the creator of Broadway musicals Hamilton and In the Heights, wrote a Washington Post editorial in December that advocated for four things to help Puerto Rico, the island he would visit every summer to see his grandparents. Number one, drop the crippling 20% excise tax on Puerto Rican products that was just passed in the 2017 tax law. This new law treats the island as a foreign country, imposing a 12.5% tax on the income that that companies there receive from intellectual property. This will affect the island's pharmaceutical and medical device sector, making it harder for companies to keep their doors open in Puerto Rico ensuring job losses in the future. Number two, Puerto Rico receives only a small portion of the Medicaid funding that it would qualify for as a state. Island hospitals and health centers could help so many with the streamlined Medicaid enrollment. Number three, fund the 94 billion aid package requested by the Puerto Rican government. And number four, release Puerto Rico from its crushing debt that it is not able to pay. This holiday season, Puerto Ricans will continue to rebuild, but more importantly, they will continue to mourn the tremendous loss of family and friends. An investigation by the New York Times of daily mortality data from Puerto Rico's Vital Statistics Bureau indicates a higher death toll after the hurricane than the government there has acknowledged. Currently, the official hurricane death toll in Puerto Rico is listed at 64. The Times investigation reveals that Puerto Rico may have actually lost 1,052 lives. Today's guest is a genuine, bona fide hero. 
Seven years ago this week, Daniel Hernandez Jr. was just five days into his job, working as an intern for Arizona Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords. The 20-year-old was helping put together a Congress on Your Corner event in his hometown of Tucson, Arizona, on January 8, 2011. The supermarket parking lot event attracted around 30 constituents who came to hear Congresswoman Giffords talk on that sunny day. Then, the unthinkable happened. A disturbed shooter began firing his semi-automatic pistol into the crowd. The Congresswoman was shot in the head. Rather than running for cover, Hernandez began checking on gunshot victims around him until he noticed Giffords lying on the ground with a severe wound. He went directly to her and started applying first aid, skills he had picked up during his training as a certified nursing assistant in high school. Hernandez held her hand and lifted her head up so she could breathe due to the large amount of blood she was losing. He repeatedly let her know that her family was being contacted and that she was going to be okay. Hernandez instructed Giffords to squeeze his hand to make sure she was still with him. She did. He stayed with her until her ambulance arrived. In total, 18 people were shot. Six of those victims died. Gifford's doctors credit Hernandez for saving the congresswoman's life. National attention immediately followed Hernandez, who repeatedly shunned the label of hero and said it was the right thing to do. President Barack Obama recognized him four days later after the shooting in a nationally televised memorial service in Tucson. Our hearts are full of thanks for that good news and our hearts are full of gratitude for those who saved others. We are grateful to Daniel Hernandez, a volunteer in Gabby's office. And Daniel, I'm sorry, you may deny it, but we've decided you are a hero because you ran through the chaos to minister to your boss and tended to her wounds and help keep her alive. Today, Daniel is a rising political star in Arizona. He has served as a member of the City of Tucson Commission on LGBT Issues. He was elected to the Sunnyside Unified School District Governing Board and served as board president. After serving on the school board, Daniel launched a campaign for his hometown's legislative district and won the seat in 2016. This year, he is running for re-election and he shares with us what it takes to run for office. Thank you, Daniel Hernandez, for being on the show today. I'm very honored to have you here. You're one of the people that I admire, and I think you're just amazing what you've been able to do in such a short amount of time. Uh, what You're running for state representative. This is your second term. Uh, tell us how, one, what made you run for state representative, and how's your first term been? Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's a little bit of an interesting story how I decided to run for 
uh, state representative. I actually spent 11 months trying to find somebody else to run. Um, I did not go into this wanting to run for the legislature originally. Um, I've been serving on a school board since 2011. So for me, the idea of running for the legislature, having to split my time between Tucson and Phoenix, was not one that necessarily appealed to me. But I felt like the person who was in that office wasn't doing a good job of representing a heavily Latino, heavily Democratic district. Um, a conservative Republican was there. And I decided, you know, if I can't find another candidate, then maybe I'm the best candidate to run. So in February of 2016, fairly late, um, I filed on February 29th. So, you know, it was a, a leap year day. Yeah. Um, I decided to file, um, launch my campaign, and then went full force into it because I don't do anything halfway. Um, so I ran. I ran to win. Um, I had a very competitive primary where I ended up spending $75,000. Um, I had a very competitive general where I ended up spending $55,000. So it was a very competitive primary in general. But for me, it was important that we had somebody who I think understood how the process worked because I'd been going up to the Capitol in Arizona for nine years. Um, somebody who had the same values that I think most of the district had. So making sure that we worked to ensure that women have the ability to choose, you know, whether or not they have the ability to choose the healthcare that they want, uh, making sure that we are funding education. Arizona is the lowest in terms of per pupil education funding in the country. If you include Puerto Rico and Guam, we're not even in the top 50 anymore. Um, and then also making sure that we were standing up for marginalized communities, the Latino community and also the LGBTQ community. Um, the person who had held the seat prior to the Republican was actually an openly gay legislator, but he was appointed and didn't run a campaign that was able to keep up with the Republican. Um, so for me, I knew this is not a district that is opposed to having an LGBT elected official, but it is one where you need to work hard and win over voters and make sure that you are sharing with them why you are the best person. What are some of the top issues that are in the district um, that made you decide to run for it because they were not being addressed? So like I mentioned, education funding is probably one of the biggest issues, followed closely by health care access. So the Affordable Care Act has done a lot to try and increase people's ability to access insurance. But in a lot of parts of my district, because my district goes from Nogales, which is on the border, all the way to Tucson, we have just no healthcare providers. We have very limited resources, very limited healthcare providers. Most of the providers that exist are federally qualified healthcare centers, which are fantastic and they do a great job. But when you have one or two clinics servicing 20,000 people, like it can be difficult. So making sure that all of the parts of the district and parts of Arizona have some high level of access to quality healthcare has been a big concern. Uh, making sure kids have good schools to go to. And then thirdly, and I think most importantly, making sure we're really working on the economy and making sure that we are really looking to the future and saying, how can we prepare our students? And how can we retrain people who are out of the workforce who had to leave because they lost their job or because they lost, um, you know, their, their jobs just aren't here anymore, either manufacturing or because of mining, um, and giving them new skills to be able to go into the workforce again. Because a lot of these people are wanting and needing to work, but don't necessarily have the skill set right now. I think it's amazing how you've, you've, you've been able to go at this mm -hmm. um, with all this knowledge and, 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 and enthusiasm to run for public office. Um, you've been involved in politics all your life. You, even in your college years, you were politically active. What do you say for that person that wants to seek office 
what are the attributes, the, the sort of like the what they should have on their resume and what they should feel inside if they want to follow the same route that you took? So there's nothing that you need to have on your resume to run for office. The first time I ran, I was a college student at 21 at the University of Arizona who did not know everything about K-12 funding, did not know everything about discipline, did not know everything about curriculum. But I ran because at the time we had a bad school district, sorry, bad school board that was, I think, really having a negative impact on the school district. We had people who weren't there for the good of the kids or for the good of the staff. So I think the number one thing is if you feel like you can contribute, if you feel like your values are more aligned with where the direction needs to go, then you should run. It's not an issue of, oh, I have a master's and now I'm running for a school board or, you know, I, I got this degree, so I'm going to run for this office. It's really, what is your passion and then what can you contribute? Because I think a lot of times people say, well, I'm not qualified. I'm not ready to do this. And then they self-select out. And when they do that, what ends up happening is a lot of people kind of say, this is not for me. And then we have really awful people get into elected office who are making bad choices or making different choices than the ones that we would make, but they're not special. <laughs> those, yeah. those, those people who are in elected office are not amazing most of the time. They are mediocre people who figured out a system which is usually not that difficult to run for office. You know, most offices in Arizona, especially at the local level, school districts particularly, we have over 250 school districts in the state of Arizona. So what ends up happening is people don't even bother running. So whoever gets, you know, 130 signatures to get on the ballot ends up getting elected because nobody else chose to run against them. They'll complain and be upset about the policies that are being put into place. But until people start stepping up and running, I think that's going to be the problem. I see uh, we're Facebook friends and I see a lot of your family members at your at your events supporting you. It seems like you have a very politically active family. What roles do they have in the party and in your campaign? So my little sister's running for state house next year. Oh wow. Um so that'll be fun. Um if we get elected, I think as far as we know we'll be the first brother and sister living sorry, uh serving um in the legislature together. Um we've had a father and a daughter and then the speaker's mother is running next year. Yeah. So it might be a son and a, and a mom. Um, but I think it would be really exciting to have my sister Alma uh, join me in the house. She lives in the district that we grew up in. Um, and there's three open seats, so she's running for one of those open seats. Um, so for me, the entire reason that I got into politics was because I wanted to help people and I wanted to get more people involved in the process. In doing so, I've been able to bring my family members along. So my mother wasn't a citizen until 2016. Wow. She became a citizen to be able to vote against Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> it wasn't enough that I ran for office twice. Yeah. That wasn't enough to convince her to become a citizen to vote. It had to be Donald <laughs> Trump. Um, my my dad has, um, you know, gone from being an inactive voter who had not voted in over a decade to somebody who now not only votes in every election, but sometimes has arguments and disagreements with me about about certain things that we're voting on, which is is great because, again, to have him go from not voting at all to now arguing with me why he thinks we should vote yes or no on a proposition or uh, vote for this person or against that person I think is really, really exciting. And then my sister Consuelo um, has taken on activism but in a different way. So instead of looking at elected office, she's really worked to mobilize and to... I think antagonize um, certain elected officials for some of their stances that they've taken, um, particularly Republican members of Congress in, in Arizona who she thinks are doing the things that she and the 
group that she started don't agree with. So trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act, trying to pass this tax bill. So she has been really active in getting more people involved in protesting and bird dogging and making sure we're holding those people accountable. So all of us have kind of played different roles. Um, I ran for the first time in 2011. My sister Alma helped me run my campaign. Consuelo was our most uh, number one door knocker and phone banker. Um, so I think for us, it's totally a family affair and we all get involved. So I'm really looking forward to once we get started next year, helping Alma when she's running. Amazing. Good luck to her. It's been seven years since the Tucson shooting. Um, we're Gabby Gifford, the congresswoman that you were interning for, was shot. You ran to her, assisted her, sa helped save her life. It put you put the national spotlight on you. Mm -hmm. But rarely do I hear in the interviews how you're dealing, are you still dealing with trauma from that incident? Have you been able to heal? So I was very lucky. Um, I went to a therapist because I was ordered to go by the, by the house um, four times. And after the fourth time, the therapist said, you know, you are doing everything that I would ask you to do. You've got the coping mechanisms to deal with what happened on the day of and everything to deal with the day after. Um, I've not had any issues where I've had to go back, um, but I know that if I did need to, they're available. And I think that's the big thing for me, that everybody handles trauma and stress differently. Mental health is um, important. Mental health is extremely important, and everybody deals with it differently. So I think for me, I haven't needed it, but I know that if I did, all I have to do is make one phone call, and, and I can go in and, and talk, to, talk to the folks that uh, saw me the, the first time. The other thing that I would say is, I'm, I think, wired very differently than a lot of different people. Um, I maintain my cool and I'm able to be very calm in stressful situations, but even afterwards, I'm able to process them, I think, in a very different way. Yeah, so in 2014, I believe, I may have been 15, um, I was at a bar with some friends um, called IBTs, which is one of the gay bars in Tucson, and what ended up happening was one of our friends, who was a bartender there, ended up getting stabbed eight times. So... I, of course, um, was a first responder um, in that situation. And I think it was really interesting for me because I was able to, once again, maintain my calm, um, ask for personal protective equipment. So I asked for gloves. Um, I was on the phone with 911 while doing a quick inspection of, of my friend to see, you know, how many stab wounds did he have? How shallow was his breathing? So that way I was able to report out <laughs> what was going on. And when the police showed up, um, one of the officers joked that it's always me that's in these yeah. in these. I gotta situations. say, what type of training did you take in high school that prepared you so well for this? So I was very fortunate that I did a career and technical education program um, in Sunnyside to train as a nursing assistant and as a phlebotomist. So I was trained as a nursing assistant and a phlebotomist, but let me tell you, that is not training for, for trauma situations. Um, so one of the things that I did a lot was I shadowed a lot of doctors um, at University Medical Center in Tucson and also at Tucson Medical Center. So I actually got to go into the ER and just spend a lot of time observing. So a lot of my training wasn't like a formal training. It was more of a opportunity to follow and see what they did because I wanted to go into healthcare. So for me, in this incident with this with this friend of ours, um, he was stabbed eight times. Um, he had been drinking, so his blood was very thin and it wasn't coagulating. So he was bleeding all over the place. And it was funny because one of the people that was there was a friend of mine who's actually a trained medic in the Air Force, but she had never been in a traumatic situation. So she, so she froze up. Yeah. 
And yet here I am as somebody who no longer has any certifications um, to do anything, including CPR or first aid, because I lost my certifications because I haven't renewed them, am having to step in and check to see how many wounds, um, do a quick report out to um, the EMTs so that when they took him, they knew like he's likely been drinking. Um, you know, he got stabbed at least eight times from what we could see in the lower right quadrant, and they were able to very quickly take him into the hospital, into surgery, and so save his life. Survive, yeah, and then they were able to take him into surgery, um, save his life. So for me, I think what ended up happening at that time was again a very traumatic experience. There were a lot of people that were at the bar who you know still deal with with some of the trauma and it's totally understandable but for whatever reason i've been able to process it and and deal with it without having to you know have flashbacks or any post-traumatic stress disorder so again that's why every person is wired very differently and i don't think we need to push people who don't want to be in therapy into therapy because that's not helpful but also making sure that people understand what it's there for and really reduce the stigma around it mm-hmm. because that's one of the things that we talk about a lot in gun violence prevention that you know we need to keep the guns away from the people that are mentally ill and criminals but we need to also be careful that we don't go so far as to do that and stigmatize people who are mentally ill who are more likely to hurt themselves than they are anybody else and that's i think one of the one of the kind of pitfalls that we potentially go into when we talk about mental health that we stigmatize it so that people don't want to seek it because they're afraid that if they get tagged as being mentally ill, mm-hmm. it could be anything from seasonal affectiveness disorder where you you aren't getting, you know, the, the right level of sunlight to somebody who's like paranoid and schizophrenic. Like there is a spectrum and there's a lot of different kinds of mental illness that, you know, we obviously need to do more to provide services for. Every time there's a shooting in the United mm-hmm. States, which is unfortunately quite often, sometimes they'll bring you as a guest host at a, on, a, on a talk show to talk about the issue. Do, do you find it, one, are you up to the challenge and do you get tired of it? You know, I can't say that I get tired of it because I think it's so important to share my experience to hopefully try and change policies and laws to prevent this from happening to other people. So there's this sense of responsibility. So even if I've done the same interview a million times, which at this point I'm over 2,500 interviews um, since the shooting. Um, Not all of them about the shooting, but just 25. And even if the interview is nothing related to the shooting, it's just, you know, oh, you won your election, and then they bring up the shooting. So there's always something that gets brought up because of my background and my experience. So for me, I think, there's a sense of responsibility, as there is with a lot of other survivors from January 8th, to speak out. So, yes, we've said the same stories, you know, 2,500 times. Yes, we've shared our experiences, but we need to keep sharing them because until we change the laws that are in place, we are not where we need to be. And there are 90 plus Americans each day that are dying because of gun violence. Um, so until that number goes down and we are not at a higher risk of being killed by gun violence in this country than any other reason, we are not doing and we have not solved the problem of gun violence. What can Latino families, Latinos and individuals do to reduce gun violence in their neighborhoods? So first of all, we need to make sure that people are informed that this is a big problem. I think if we all talk to friends, families, loved ones, 
we will all realize that at some point we've interacted with somebody who's been affected or impacted by gun violence. We all know somebody who's been shot at, somebody who's been killed, somebody who's not, not that the, you know, Theo cousins, whatever. We have all met somebody who's been affected by gun violence. But what we need to do is talk about it as a problem. We need to let our elected officials know that we care about this. Because what happens a lot is we don't hear from Latino voters. We don't hear from Latino families. So voters are important. But what's more important is hearing from the constituents and the people that live in your district. So if we had Latinos reaching out to their members of Congress and to their U.S. senators and saying, this is an endemic problem in our community. This is why we need you to pass stricter laws so that, you know, gangbangers don't have easy access. Because the big problem is free and easy access to firearms. We see all over this country where states have imposed strict laws. But then they're neighboring a state where there are very loose and lax laws. And because of a bill that's moving through Congress right now, a reciprocity bill that would allow the strictest gun laws, uh, sorry, the weakest gun laws to be enforced all over the country, it would basically undermine any state's ability to pass laws on gun violence. So that's where we really need folks to reach out to the members of Congress, share their stories, and say why they're concerned about this. But more importantly, I think we need to make sure we are talking amongst each other and in the the Spanish language press to share stories of gun violence. Because what happens a lot is it seems like it's a removed thing. And when we look at gun violence, especially mass shootings, a lot of the time it's, you know, an Anglo guy who's in his 20s um, who does the incident. So we don't talk about it as much as I think a lot of other communities do. So we need to say, you know what? No, this is a problem that, if, that impacts us, and we need to be worried about this because we don't want our kids growing up in fear that they may be shot at just because that somebody has any access to a weapon that shouldn't. Thank you, Daniel. I really appreciate you sharing all the insight that you have on this subject. I'm very happy that you're taking the lead and being brave enough to step up and be that leader that we need and for still talking about this issue seven years later. Tell us about your website and where people can find out more about you. Yeah, um, so I'm on Facebook and on Twitter. Um, on Facebook, it's daniel.hernandez.az. Um, on Twitter, it's at djvlp. And uh, my website is danielhernandez.org. Or sorry, danielforarizona.org. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thanks for having me.